forever, like forever and ever. But it's referring to a very long but defined period of time. So that's how to understand these forever references to the temple. The temple will not exist forever because, as we saw, it's going to be done away with in the eternal state. So then how do we handle this word forever when we're limiting the temple to the thousand years? Well, forever lexically can refer to a period of time which is long but defined. That's what the millennial kingdom is. It's long. It's a thousand years. But it still is defined because it only will last for 1,000 years. So that takes us out of Ezekiel 37. Uh, the vision of the, the two visions or metaphors that Ezekiel saw depicting what he saw in chapter 36. Chapter 36 is the physical and spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel. Chapter 37 is that vision pictured in two forms, the valley of the dry bones and the two sticks coming together. Then the question becomes, okay, this is all fascinating information about the restoration of Israel in the last days. What in Israel, as we speak today, is a nation in unbelief? What is the catalyst or the agency that God is going to use to bring his covenanted people from unbelief to belief? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's answered in chapters 38 and 39. The means of restoration is a northern invasion into the land of Israel spearheaded by Russia. Now, gosh, I didn't get on the phone with Putin and say, okay, When are you going to do the invasion? Because I want my study to be relevant. Um, The fact of the matter is, as you just go through the Bible, you see things happening in the news that, that fit exactly the scenario that Ezekiel describes. So, with that being said, we now move into the final leg of our study, which is chapters 38 and 39. You have an invasion plan, verses 1 through 13, an invasion executed, verses 14 through 16, An invasion defeated. There's a real happy ending to this. Chapter 38, verse 17 through chapter 39, verse 20. And then the invasion's results, end of chapter 39, verses 1 through 29. So let's start looking at, as time permits, the invasion planned, verses 1 through 13. We have God's intention... Because these invading parties, they think they're doing their own will. But actually it's God that put hooks in their jaws, as we'll see. So God's intention is disclosed in verses 1 through 9. And then Gog, that's the leader of the invasion. His intention is disclosed in verses 10 through 13. When you read verses 10 through 13, you'll understand the Middle East. You'll understand what just happened with Russia and the Ukraine. Because it's all about money. It's all about coming into the land of Israel for material reasons. That's why I was listening to a news commentator this week. 
And he said something to the effect of, Putin is going to go as far as Poland. And I shouted at the TV, no, he won't. He will keep going past Europe, past Poland, and he will go into the Middle East or one of his successors because that's what the Bible says would happen. And he's coming in because of wealth, economics. This is what Ezekiel said 2,600 years ago. So we have God's intention. God is drawing them in because God wants to be the rescuer at the end of the day. But they don't know they're being drawn by God, these foreign powers. And their intention is given in verses 10 through uh, 13. So let's begin here with chapter 38 and verse 1, which is God's intent. And you look at verse chapter 38, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying. So, aha, we have a new vision. And that's the structural marker that Ezekiel always uses to start something new. And what is being described here is the tool that God is going to use to bring an unbelieving nation to faith. He is going to put them in a situation where they have no one to help them. Not even the late great United States of America will help them. And their back will be completely against the wall. And they'll have no one to help them but God. Now, when you think about that, that's a wonderful position to be in. Because they're actually going to ask God to help them. And that's when God works and brings them to saving faith. He rescues them physically and spiritually. So as you go into verse 2, you start to see a list of names. It says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog, that's the ruler, land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him. So here are mentioned several nations that we'll be walking through as we move into this section. By my count, there's about 14 nations mentioned. You'll notice it says Gog. That's the leader of this coalition. And if you went to a normal church, you would have no idea who these people are. I mean, you would never hear, I mean, you would be looking at this saying, what in the world is this talking about? But because you go to an abnormal church that spent five weeks in Genesis 10, or maybe even more, you can go back to your notes in Genesis 10 and you, you'll recognize all of these names. These names, Genesis 10, are Noah's descendants and where they went following the flood and the Tower of Babel. And all you have to do is pay attention to some scholarly sources like Herodotus, Josephus, etc., And you can generally see where these people groups went and the modern nations containing those people groups are part of this end times coalition. And then you'll look at your headlines and you'll see, oh my goodness, Ezekiel knew what he was talking about. Because every single one of them is perfectly in alignment for this scenario that we start to see described here. So you'll notice there that the first mention of a nation is Magog. Josephus tells us where Magog settled. 
you'll see Magog's name in Genesis 10. Josephus in the first century says Magog founded those that from him were named the Magogites, but who are by the Greeks called the Scythians. And basically we know that the Scythians migrated from central Rush, excuse me, Central Asia to southern Russia around the eighth to the seventh century BC. So we're pretty confident that Magog here represents those nations today that we call Central Asia, the Stands, Kazakhstan. The Ukraine, Afghanistan, maybe I need to say that again, Afghanistan, should I say it a third time, Afghanistan, uh, you'll see them mentioned there, upper right hand corner of the map, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and why don't we add one more? Afghanistan. Why do I keep mentioning Afghanistan over and over again? Well, unless you've been under a rock, um, Afghanistan probably is where one of the greatest debacles in American foreign policy has ever occurred. Where the Biden administration, and this, it makes absolutely no sense to me. Either Joe Biden is the stupidest man that ever lived, as dumb as a box of rocks, which could be true, or he is being manipulated by powers outside of himself, or maybe some combination thereof. Maybe he was not elected, but selected to make a decision like this, where he took out of the country as we were getting out of Afghanistan, and whether you think we should be in Afghanistan or not in Afghanistan, that's not the point. The point is how he did it. Everybody with two brain cells to rub together understands that you get the civilians out first, and you get your allies and those who helped you out first and you get your weapons which happen to be 85 billion dollars of weaponry you get them out first or you destroy them or whatever you're going to do then step two you pull the military out the biden administration did the exact opposite they pulled the military out first left the weapons left american citizens behind um left allies behind in a part of the world where the Taliban and related groups quickly seized authority. And so American allies, American citizens, you have a situation where they're trapped behind enemy lines and you just militarize the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban, they cannot cannot even believe their good fortune. Um... This is from Fox News. It talks about U.S. weapons seized by the Taliban because of the strange, bizarre, inept, bungling 
manipulated, whatever term you want to use, pull out of Afghanistan. $85 billion in weaponry left behind. 75,000 vehicles left behind. 600,000 weapons left behind. 200 aircraft left behind to the Taliban that has an agenda to wipe Israel off the map. And our own government just paved the way for this to happen. Now, we can all get upset politically, and rightfully so about it. But the truth of the matter is, when you actually look at this, it shouldn't be much of a surprise. Because Ezekiel himself predicted Magog, Central Asia, would come against the nation of Israel in the last days. The second nation that he mentions here is Rosh. Look at verse 2. Son of man, set your face towards Gog, that's the leader, of the land of Magog, that's Central Asia. And then it says, set your face towards the prince of Rosh. Now here we come into one of the most interesting and controversial debates on the subject of Bible prophecy. Because a lot of people out there, and I notice that they're raising their voices a lot now because of Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. And they're saying Russia has nothing to do with Bible prophecy. And the reason they're saying that is they're saying that Rosh is not a proper noun, but a common noun. And if Rosh is a common noun, then it's not a geographical place. And what they're all saying is Rosh simply is a common noun, a descriptor. Rosh means head, top, summit, chief. It doesn't mean Russia. In fact, if you're reading today from the King James Version, you will notice that the King James Version, as it translates verse 2, leaves out the name Rosh. Because a lot of you are reading this saying, I don't, see, I don't see Rosh here. And the reason you don't see Rosh here is the King James Version, although a very good translation in other areas, has made a decision to treat the noun Rosh as a common noun and not a proper noun designating a specific person or designating a specific place. So this is how it will read in the KJV or the RSV or the ESV or the NAB or the NLT or the NIV. Some of you might be NIV positive. You're reading this out of the NIV. You're saying, Pastor, I don't see the name Rosh. Well, there's a reason for that. The English translations made a decision not to translate this as a proper noun, but as a common noun. There's a lot of people that are capitalizing on this, even people that typically you would like. Here is uh, Derek Gilbert of Skywatch News. And you notice his Gog Magog invasion doesn't look like mine. I've got this big arrow from Rosh or Russia coming down into the land of Israel. He doesn't have that. He thinks the whole thing is spearheaded by Turkey, etc., and he writes on this tweet, rough locations of the northern coalition of God in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Mount Zephon, 
is the uttermost north. Then he says, no, Russia is not Magog. In Hebrew, Rosh means head. So he's following the King James Version and he's taking Rosh as a common noun. And what you'll discover is people that will malign this interpretation that I'm giving, a Russian-led conspiracy. And I, I sadly even had a seminary professor do this. Oh, ha, 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 you think it's Russia. Well, you just think that because Rosh sounds like Russia. And you're trying to make it up to fit the headlines. So there's another perspective, though, where Rosh is a proper noun. Not a common noun, but a proper noun. Meaning that Rosh is a geographical place on planet Earth. It doesn't just mean head, uh, chief, summit, top. It's talking about a specific location and a specific group of people. And you'll notice that the New American Standard Bible, which of course is the version that the Apostle Paul used, right? You'll notice if you're reading this under the NASB, so you're a spirit-led Christian in other words. And this is a good exercise for us because these English translations that we have, none of them are perfect. So you, on different issues, you gravitate toward different ones based on what you think, which one captures the best rendering of the Hebrew text. You'll notice that Rosh is mentioned. Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the leader of the land of Magog, Central Asia, the prince of Rosh, and we believe that the prince of Rosh is Russia. Now, why do we believe that Rosh is not a common noun, but a proper noun? Are we just trying to sell books? Um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, in his book, called The End, which I'd recommend to you, gives five reasons why we should understand this as a proper noun and not a common noun. He says, the weight of the evidence favors translating Rosh in Ezekiel 38 as a proper name. Five arguments support this view. Okay, I like this guy. First, eminent Hebrew scholars like Kyle. Now, Kyle and Dillich is one of the most reputable uh, sources in Hebrew that you can possibly find. First, eminent scholars like Kyle, and then he mentions Wilhelm Gesenius, both held that a proper noun is the better translation of Rosh in Ezekiel 38, verses 2 and 3, Ezekiel 39, verse 1, and refers to a specific geographical location. And I actually have Gesenius's quote written in 18, reprinted, I guess, in 1847. He died, I think, in 1842, where he looks at Rosh and he says it's a proper noun. Gesenius is the father of lexicography which is the science and art of compiling dictionaries, predominantly Hebrew dictionaries. He was no slouch. And he made that statement about Russia when Russia was a Christian Orthodox country. He says Russia is going to invade Israel. And there wasn't even an Israel at the time he said this to invade. 
So this maligning of the view, oh, you just think it sounds the same, so you're making it Russia. Well, what do you do with Cassinius, a scholar's scholar? Mark Hitchcock goes on and he says, second, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates Rosh as the proper name Ross. This translation is especially significant since the Septuagint was translated only three centuries after Ezekiel was written. Obviously much closer in time to the original than modern translations. The modern translations of Rosh as an adjective can be traced to the Latin Vulgate of Jerome. A translation, by the way, that Luther himself did not trust because he felt it contained Roman Catholic concepts in it. So Luther, when he did his German translation, did not rely on the Latin Vulgate. Third, in their articles on Rosh, many Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, such as the New Bible Dictionary, Wycliffe Bible Dictionary, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia support taking it as a proper name in Ezekiel 38. Fourth, Rosh is mentioned the first time in Ezekiel 38 verse 2 and then repeated in chapter 38 verse 3 and chapter 39 verse 1. If Rosh were simply a title, meaning chief or head or top, it would be dropped in these latter two places because when titles are repeated in Hebrew, they are generally abbreviated. So it's not just called Rosh here in verse 2. It's also called Rosh, verse 3, chapter 39, verse 1. The full name is given, which would be very, very odd in terms of repetition for this to be just a title of something. Fifth, the most impressive evidence in favor of taking Rosh as a proper name is simply that this translation in this context is the most natural. J.A. Cook translates Ezekiel 38 verse 2, the chief of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. He calls this the most natural way of rendering the Hebrew. The compelling evidence of biblical scholarship indicates that Rosh be understood as a proper name, the specific geographical area. So why do we think Rosh means Russia? I mean, we know it's a place. Hitchcock says, first, linguistically and historically, there is substantial evidence that in Ezekiel's day, there was a group of people known as Rosh, Rishu, or Ross who lived in what today is southern Russia. Egyptian inscriptions as early as 2600 BC identify a place called Rosh. A later Egyptian inscription from about 1500 BC refers to a land called Rishu that was located to the north of Egypt. Other documents include a place named Rosh or its equivalent in various languages. The word appears three times in the Septuagint, ten times in Sargon's inscriptions, once in Ashurbanipal's cylinder, once in Sennacherib's annals, and five times in Ugaritic tablets. Mark Hitchcock did his master's thesis on this subject. 
With, with the word has a variety of forms and spellings, it is clear that the same people are in view. Rosh was apparently a well-known place in Ezekiel's day. Number one, it's a place. It's a people. It's not some sort of adjectival description. Number two, using all of these sources, we can track where that people group existed. And the place they existed is what today we call Russia. Clyde Billington in the Michigan Theological Journal has an extended description of this. And he says, the Rosh people of the area north of the Black Sea form the people known today as the Russians. Gesinius, a scholar scholar, said of Rosh, it's not just a proper noun, he says in his Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon, he says undoubtedly the Russians. Now, why, why give you all this boring lexical information? Because you're about to be hit by a bunch of propaganda, if you haven't been hit by it already. Sadly, much of it coming from within Christianity, saying Rosh has nothing to do with Russia. And I'm here completely disagreeing with what they're saying. I am disagreeing with the King James Version on that point. This is not a common noun. This is a proper noun. And you can academically identify Rosh as the people group of Russia. So when Putin in 2008, I think it was, rolls right over Georgia, I said to myself, well, that's terrible, but I'm not surprised. Because Ezekiel predicted the character of that nation 2,600 years ago. And then in 2014, when Putin became aggressive into Crimea, I say to myself, you know, it's disappointing, but I'm not surprised. Because Ezekiel predicted the character of that nation 2,600 years ago. And this week, when Putin invades the Ukraine, by the way, just look at a map, as he's invading the Ukraine, he's not going the opposite direction of Israel. He's coming down from the north, which is exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. I say to myself, what a tragic thing. Because we have connected to our church some of our missionaries trying to get out. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but I say to myself, you know, it's horrible. It's terrible. I'm going to pray for the oppressed people there. I'm going to do everything within my power to get our folks out. But then I say at the back of my head, I'm really not surprised because Ezekiel predicted the character of that nation 2,600 years ago. So it's not just, oh, you think Rosh means Russia, they sound the same, ha, ha, ha. No, there's actually exegetical and lexical academic reasons why Rosh is a proper noun meaning Russia. There's also a geographical argument. Look at chapter 38, verse 6. Gomer, with all its troops, Beth Tagarma, from the remote parts of the north. Look at chapter 38, look at verse 15. You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. 
Look at chapter 39. Look at verse 2. And I will turn you around, drive you, and take you from the remote parts of the north. I'm seeing a pattern here. This is not just a northern invasion. It's coming from the remote parts of the north. Now, most people, when they see this expression north, they don't know what to to do with it. Where's the starting point? And let me help you with that. The starting point in Bible prophecy is always Israel. Because if you look down at verse 12, God says of Israel, they live at the center of the world. You have to start to think the way God thinks. You see, the world itself looks at Israel as just a little nation in the way of progress. But that's not how God thinks. As far as God is concerned, Israel is living at the center of the world. In fact, that word translated center is belly button or navel in Hebrew, which is the center of the body. Because that's the part of the world that God covenanted real estate to a particular group of people. Over in Ezekiel verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, it talks about Jerusalem dwelling at the center of the nations. So the starting point is always Israel. And just go straight up north. What nation do you run into? You run into Rosh or Russia. So there is a lexical slash exegetical argument why Rosh means Russia, and there's actually a geographical argument why Rosh means Russia, which means you understand something that the people on cable television can't even begin to figure out. Because your starting point is God's word, you understand exactly why that happened. That what What is that? One nation rolling over another. That is just phase A. For, for greater things coming. Because your Bible says, ultimately, Russia is going to keep right on moving north and it's going to go right into the land of Israel. And there's a lot of territory in between there. I want you to understand something, and I need to get ready to, to wrap up, believe it or not. The world changed this week. I hope you understand that. We are living in, and I don't mean to get knee-deep into politics... But we are living in the post-Donald Trump world. Where the world system was upset over Trump's tweets. That's the biggest problem they had. Look, Look at his tweets. Well, guess what? You got rid of that president, I think, in very suspicious way. But that's another sermon for another day. The tweets are gone. But we're on the precipice of World War III. Why? Because Putin, ex-KGB agent, by the way, smells weakness. Why would he smell, uh, smell weakness? Because of the debacle in Afghanistan. He looks at Joe Biden as someone that won't stand up for anything. And so what you're going to see more and more is these dictators are going to start making their move. And if Russia is successful here, you watch what China does. 
And you watch what Iran does, which as I speak, is on the cusp of getting a nuclear weapon. God help us. And yet you look at the world and you say, this is very disappointing. But at the same time, you know what? This is what God said would happen. Because Jesus is coming back to rescue his church from the wrath of God. Can I get an amen on that? Well, speaking of literal interpretation, I'm six minutes over. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word, how it informs us even about headlines and make us good stewards of your truth in these last days. Help us to use these things to point people to the news of Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, happy mini intermission.